Uh, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory. Wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, These in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those who... Uh, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is at, at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That is a great promise, isn't it, at the end there, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The title of my talk this morning is, Where Are We Up To With Global Mission? And it's interesting, just hearing our sharing in the, the Big Days segment, it's very clear that we've got that sense of fragility, a sense that, that life is hard maybe even a sense of the nearly infinite need that humanity has. Um, and that, that, inf that nearly infinite need across the world is, is, is more acute to us at times than others, sometimes than others, isn't it? And yet it's not an infinite need. We have an infinite God. And our hope is that God will meet the needs of the world. The vision statement of CMS is a world that knows Jesus. It's quite a bold vision statement, don't you think? In comparison, I was reminded of a time in a former role that I used to do a couple of decades ago, uh, and one of the clients in this role was Coca-Cola in Fiji. So, you know, I got to do the visit to Fiji. That was pretty cool. Um, and they had a vision statement. Coca-Cola in, in Fiji had a vision statement. It was this, a can of Coke in the hand of every Fijian. That sounds really cool, doesn't it? You can just imagine all of the photos of all the cans of Coke, and that would have made them feel, in a sense, fulfilled that they'd done their job. But it's a pretty bold vision, but the CMS vision, or really the biblical vision, is even bolder, isn't it? What would it take for us to see a world that knows Jesus? How would you evangelize the whole world. And some of you may be thinking that the preacher has lost the plot. What world are you thinking that you're planning to evangelize? Are you kidding? Some of you may think, hang on, that's offensive. What about Jesus himself? What did he say about this idea of world evangelization? There's a verse in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus says, this gospel, this news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So it's a word of prophecy, two parts. Jesus is saying, the whole world will be evangelized, and only then will I return. 
So first world evangelization, then the end of the world. If we're looking for the crystal ball, this is the crystal ball. Now, some people misinterpret this and they say, see, we've been given a job to do and until we do it, Jesus won't return. So get on with it or else you're just delaying the return of Christ. That's a guilt trip approach to mission. There is a risk that we see this as our mission, as our job that we need to sort out, not God's mission. But even though it doesn't depend on us, it certainly does involve us if we will participate. And so will we? Do we want Jesus proclaimed in the whole world? And that's the starting point for this talk. We're asking the question, where are we up to with mission? If we want to know where we're up to, we need to know where we've come from and where we're going. And we're going to look at this question in three ways. We're going to ask, where are we up to in the Bible story? We're going to ask, where are we up to in world history? And we're going to ask, where are we up to as a church? What does it look like for us to be seeking a world that knows Jesus? The Bible, history, and our church. So firstly, where are we up to in the Bible's story? God's mission starts in Genesis. And the whole Bible really is the account of God's mission to create to restore, but even more than that, much more than restore, perfect humanity as God's flourishing representative over everything. What a mission. But where we as a church come into that whole of Bible picture, is really, it really starts in the most obvious way from the book of Acts onwards. It's this really significant point of handover in the mission. Handover from God the Son, who is present in our world, and he is starting this new age through his death and resurrection. A handover to God the Spirit, who then takes the message about God the Son and energizes the church and equips the church, you and me, to bear witness to that message across the whole of humanity. And, and that's where we step into the Bible picture. And you'll see yourself in that Bible picture in just a moment. In the book of Acts, that taking of the message of God, the Son, to the whole world is only just the beginning, and yet it starts in an explosive way, as we'll see. But then we wind forward to the end of the Bible's picture... We come to the book of Revelation, what's the goal, where's this all heading? And we heard from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, John says, I looked and there before me was this great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they're wearing white robes and are holding palm branches in their hands. And they cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a picture of the future and mission has happened when we get to this picture. World evangelization has happened when you're looking at this picture. 
The gospel has been preached to the whole world as Jesus predicted, and now the end has come. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue are present. And you are there, right? Can you see yourself in the picture? And everywhere you look, as you're in that great multitude of people, everywhere you look, there is diversity. Diversity of skin colour all around. Diversity of cultural background. And you're hearing people praising Jesus in different languages. But you're there with them. People from Afghanistan and North Korea. From Eritrea and Iran. They're all around you. And you are rejoicing with them, aren't you? At Jesus' glory and Jesus' grace. But what's happened between these two bookends? It's pretty important How did all these people get to be there? There's two things that we must say. Firstly, we must say that a multitude of people must have heard the gospel. One of the elders asks, you know, who are these people in white robes and where they come from? John says, well, you know, tell me. The elder says to him, they are the ones who've come out of the great ordeal. They've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, since when do you wash clothes in blood and they come out white? Well, this is not cleaning tips. This is the cleansing from guilt that you receive through Jesus' death. If you trust in him, wash your heart in Jesus' blood and God will see it as perfectly pure. Wash your mind in Jesus' blood and God will see it as perfectly clean. That's what the gospel tells us. This is the power of Jesus' blood. And you couldn't work that out on your own. I couldn't work that out on my own. It's just not the sort of thing we'd come up with. In fact, you may even feel that depending on someone else's brutal death for your cleansing is an awful thought. Depending on another person to make me innocent. I'm not that bad, am I? But the gospel tells me that, yes, I am. I need to be washed clean. It tells me that the only reason Jesus' blood was spilt was to wash us clean. Why else would Jesus' blood be spilt? Can you think of any other reason that the Son of God would take on human flesh and then pour out his lifeblood? No, this, must, this multitude must have heard the gospel of Jesus because they're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And if they hadn't heard the message, they wouldn't have been cleansed by the blood. The second thing we must say about this um, assembly here is that the gospel must have gone to the far ends of the earth. It can't have just stayed in Jerusalem. It can't have just stayed in Adelaide. Christianity is not white It is multicultural and it's much more multicultural than any church you or I have ever visited. But how did it get multicultural? There's actually only one way it could get multicultural. There's nothing accidental about it. There's nothing random about it that it just sort of happens this way. For the multitude to become multicultural, the message must go cross-cultural. Because culture is not simple. You don't accidentally cross cultures. 
if you did, then they would just eventually all dissolve in together, wouldn't they? And they would all just eventually blend into one another. But that's not how it works. Unless there is this intention to cross cultures, we stay in our own culture because it is actually our own comfort zone. We don't understand other cultures. We find them hard. At best, we see them as a novelty and we want to go and see what their food's like down at the local Adelaide version of their restaurant. But at worst, we call them foreign. And we don't really want to spend time with people who are foreign because they think differently and they talk differently, they live differently and it's difficult. If this picture in Revelation 7 of the multicultural gathering tells us anything, it tells us that throughout the history of the church, missionaries have been sent. Cross-cultural gospel workers are a fundamental necessity for the fulfillment of God's mission. It doesn't happen without cross-cultural missionaries. Missionaries must go they must keep going we must keep encouraging others to go because you know the other nations are not going to come to us now okay you might say hang on wait australia actually is pretty multi multicultural we've got twice as many people born overseas in australia as they have in america or in the uk so you think okay we're pretty multicultural people do come here to study and that's true But these numbers, it is actually just a drop in the bucket. What about the bucket? It's a very narrow slice demographically too. And here's the thing, it's actually quite rare for people who come here to become Christians, to return home and become effective evangelists in their own cultures. It's a great idea, we should try and do more of that, but... Ultimately, the other nations are not just going to come to us and solve the problem of whether we need to send missionaries or not. But you might say, but hang on, they can hear, they can hear the gospel via the internet. Haven't the mission, mission agencies kind of twigged to that yet? And sure, they, technically they can Google, how can I be saved? But there's only a very small number of languages in the world where you will get an answer to that question. We need to go to them and we need to stay for long enough for locals in that country to believe the message and then for an indigenous church to become capable of sharing the gospel without missionaries and then for that church to grow and send its own missionaries. So God sends missionaries. How else do we move from Acts to Revelation? And yes, we are all involved in mission locally here to family and friends and to our local community because mission is from everywhere to everywhere. But at its heart, don't forget that mission, it comes from a Latin word missio, meaning sending. Mission is all about sending people to other people, to other communities. And this is how we participate in the Bible's program. In Jesus' prophecy, the crystal ball, global mission is not an add-on for God. It is the centerpiece of what he's doing. He's sending his people to all the nations. So where are we up to in his Bible's picture? 
We're in the middle somewhere. We don't know the exact location, but we know where we've come from and we know where we're going and we know that in the present we are sending out missionaries. Which leads us to question two. Where are we up to in world history? We can do a quick survey of 2,000 years. That'll be fun. It'll need to be quick. But numbers do tell us a powerful story. And I'm getting my stats from the future of the Global Church, a book by Patrick Johnston who wrote the original Operation World. In Acts chapter 1, there are about 120 believers. By Acts chapter 4, there are 5,000 believers. Boom! That was, that was pretty amazing. By the end of the first century, it's hard to know, but there could have been as many as 1.4 million Christians. 0.8% of the world's population. Not bad for 60 years or so of evangelism. But check out where it goes next if we have the slides. Okay, so uh, by the year 200, it was 4.7% of the world's population. By 300, it was 7.5% of the world's population. By 400, 13.4%. By 500, one in five people on the earth were Christian. Now, were they all mature disciples? I doubt it. In our own country, just because people put Christian on the census... It doesn't mean that they necessarily have saving faith, but it does mean that the gospel has been preached extensively in Australia. Most of Australia's people groups are called reached people groups. We are a gospel-rich country, not a gospel-poor country. And remember that Jesus didn't say that the whole world would become Christian necessarily, but that the message about Jesus would go to the whole world. What happens next? Slide two. World population begins to increase significantly. There is the birth and spread of Islam during this period. The number of Christians largely stood still, but the percentage drifts down, with that exception of the extraordinary 13th century there. It's probably connected with the, the Mongol Empire. Incidentally, that century is also a century where the number of Christian martyrs exceeded 7 million and no other century prior had had more than a million martyrs. So it was obviously a, a, um, an interesting one. But the, the pattern is generally steady. But then a gradual increase... No, not that slide. Back. A gradual increase post-Reformation until now, slide three. The incredible 19th century. Check out that century. Massive explosion in missionary activity during the 1800s. By 1900, 45,000 Protestant missionaries on the go. And multiple spiritual awakenings around the world. By 1900, Christianity represented 34.4% of the world's population. One in three humans. So what was going to come next? A friend of mine recently forwarded a great Gospel Coalition article by Douglas A. Sweeney called, When Did Evangelicals Stop Caring About Missions? It's a bit of a confronting title, isn't it? But Sweeney points to the world being poised for an incredible 20th century. It was going to be the Christian century. The golden age of Christianity in the world. But what happened? Well, two world wars, dozens of genocides, Massive population growth, an increase in Islam in Asia and Africa, 45 million 
Christian martyrs, along with a devastating decline in Christian commitment in Europe, followed by the rest of the West. And so if you were just looking at the Northern Hemisphere, during that 100 years between 1900 and 2000, Christianity went from representing 82% of the population of the Northern Hemisphere to 41%. What happened to overall percentages? Slide four, the whole period. See what happens in this last century. It's interesting, isn't it? It didn't rise, it fell, but just slightly. And today it's around 32%. It's still the world's largest religion. What's happened? You know, we look around in our society and we know we're in in this post-Christianity phase. Why haven't the numbers dropped further, though? Well, it's because of the global south. In several regions, especially in Asia, Africa and South America, Christian faith grew from nearly 18% of the population in 1900 to, in 2000, 59%. That's huge in 100 years. From 18 to 59% in 100 years. The 20th century saw massive growth in the church in many of the poorest parts of the world that in some ways have offset this exodus from nominal Christian faith in the West. And So where does this leave us today? Where are we up to in world history? Well, surely the 21st century is the time to engage in cross-cultural discipleship and evangelism. Surely, us in the West, we will see these huge opportunities of what God is doing in other places and we'll say, we want to be part of that. We want to send our people, we want to, we want to send our resources. Surely we will want to share our resources. For example, the massive heritage of English language theological resources and training expertise. Surely we want to share this with the church in the parts of the world where it's growing so fast that the church can't even keep up with itself, that the leaders of the church are basically people who've been Christians for a few months more than the rest of the people. Now you might say, hang on, surely we also shouldn't be abandoning the West at a time like this. What about our friends and neighbours? Do we just give up and focus on this 1040 window? I don't know if you've heard that expression. That's the new frontier for mission, if you like. It's the the, the people's living between 10 and 40 degrees above the equator. Do we just give up and focus on that group? No, of course we don't. We here in Adelaide must keep witnessing in Australia. God has great plans for Australia. But the big picture of mission is the whole world. That's God's vision, is the whole world. And when we narrow the vision of mission down to just our own locality, perhaps we're missing out on something that God wants us to see. And and the big picture is all the culture crossing that needs to happen this century. Now is the time for sending missionaries. Now is the time for sharing. The harvest is ripe. And so let's ask the Lord of the harvest, as Jesus urges us to do to send out workers into his harvest. Which brings us to our concluding question. Question three, where are we up to as a church? Where are we up to in mission? I'm so encouraged that we are partnering with Kay. 
It's only a new partnership. So where are we up to with that as a church? What does it look like? And, and I'm not just talking to the leadership team, but, you know, yes, leadership team, maybe you can have a think about it too. Where are we up to in our partnership with Kay? But, but what about the individuals who are here, who are part of this church, who make up this church? What does it look like for you personally? Have you connected with Kay yet personally? When you read that, um, that description from Revelation 7, do you see the Southeast Asian Christians in there with you? Those people who have been living alongside Kay. The people that we've been praying that she will meet. You can't see their faces, but you and I are with them there in that group. And those people will be there because of the work that God has been doing through missionaries. Of course, we don't send our missionaries just to go and fend for themselves. We send them with our support, with our love, our prayers and our funding. So CMS talks about pray, care, give, go. Have you heard that? It's a few nods. Pray, care, give, go. Pray for missionaries, care for missionaries, give for missionaries and go and put your hand up to be a missionary. So to wind up, let's look at these four briefly. Firstly, let's pray. Do you pray for missionaries? So obviously we pray together from the platform up here, but what about in your own devotions? Asking God to let his kingdom come, praying for the countries that our workers are serving in, for the work they do and for them to be provided for and protected and enabled and flourished. Are you praying for Kay? She has had great answers to prayer, but it has been a big and painful culture shift that she's in the middle of. Difficult language learning, relationship building, and also that she can be involved in sharing Jesus in a place where sharing Jesus is extremely difficult and not exactly acceptable. You do pray for the kingdom, I assume. Let me be a little impolite here. Can we say that we are committed to God's kingdom if we don't pray for God's kingdom? You know... I think we need to sometimes redress the, the focus in our prayers on our own. On Lord, please make my life more comfortable. And um, I, don't, I, I don't know if you pray those kind of prayers, but maybe just think, am I praying a, a, a me comfort prayer or am I praying a God's kingdom prayer? Because he wants us to pray for what he wants, which is that Christ will be known in all the world, which will be the fulfillment of his mission. So let's pray. Secondly, Let's care. I used to think this was kind of just nice. But, you know, it's the least significant of the four. And then, uh, about a year ago, I interviewed some former workers, NNR, at my own church. And they'd had 11 years overseas. And I asked them, you know, how as a church we could... How should we go about thinking about the next workers we were going to be partnering with? The Purdies, these new missionaries who were going to Chile... And I thought the answer that NNR would give me is, well, pray lots and give lots of money, you know. But you know what they said? Love them. 
care about them. Because mission overseas is really hard. Missionaries' lives are turned upside down by crossing cultures. Kay needs our care, needs our love. It's not just a nice thing. So how can you show love to her in this tricky time? Start, if you haven't already, by subscribing for her partnership updates. That's her prayer letters. And then when they come through, read them. When they come through on your emails, I know how full our inboxes get. But uh, click it open. Take your hands off the mouse. Read it. Scroll down. Take your hands off again. And then pray. And then move on. You know, it's, it only takes a few moments. But it is sometimes really hard to do, isn't it? But we've got to prioritize. When you get a prayer letter email... The priority is to pray. And it's hard because you, you think, oh, no, I've got this other, these other things I need to look at, etc. Uh, and email her. You can just hit reply on those partnership updates and you can start building a relationship with the missionary. Don't expect her necessarily to reply to every message, but do let her know that you are with her in spirit and in prayer and that you love the work she's doing. Uh, and maybe take an interest in Southeast Asia in general and in the country she's in. If you know the country she's in, look it up in Operation World. And there's a fabulous phone app that allows you to look up all sorts of stats and things. Do that before you pray for Kay. Check out the stats. Read the country prayer points. Love the people. Love the local church, small as it is. So let us pray. Let us care. Thirdly, let us give. I was talking to a friend recently who works in the area of ministry fundraising. Now you might think that's a, a hard area to work. Oh, I would never want to do that. But she loves it. She's energized by this work because she sees it as a tangible expression of people's faith. And when people dig deep into their wallets and bank accounts, she sees that as a great encouragement. People are willing to put their cash into the kingdom. If people think that gospel ministry is important, their giving proves it. And their lack of giving raises questions for her. In the West, we may be time poor, but we're not money poor. Okay, I know that groceries are stupidly expensive at the moment. We're all concerned about cost of living. But if we've got money in our bank accounts, we've got money. Uh, this friend of mine said the other day, why do we keep saying nothing in my hand I bring? Now, I thought, oh, why is that? And I thought, I, I think I know what it is. It's that old hymn, uh, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But that hymn is actually talking about whether you try and bring your own righteousness and whether you try and prove yourself to God by being a good person or not. Rather, we come on the basis of Christ having washed us clean by his blood. We had to think, and neither of us could actually think of places in the Bible where it says to come to God empty-handed. Can you think of a place where it says come to God empty-handed? Because you know what, the Bible, it actually says the opposite. Um, I was walking along the next day and in my ear I was hearing the Bible read and I got to Exodus 34 verse 19 and God says in the law, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. I thought, that's, that's, that's fixed that one up. And then a few verses later, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Not just the leftovers, but the best. 
Because sending missionaries is expensive. We might be able to save a bit of money if we, you know, maybe cut back a little bit on the, on the missionaries. But we don't want to do that. The missionary standard of living is already pretty modest compared to many of us. Kay does already have a good amount of funding, but it would be good to get her fully paid for. She's not fully, fully paid for currently. And that's going to take a bunch of people, particularly from her partner churches, to commit. Are you putting your finances to work? You hear that expression in different contexts, aren't you? 99% of the time, that means putting your money somewhere that will help you to get more money. But I mean putting our finances to work for the kingdom of God. Giving to the local church. Giving to the poor. Giving to global mission. And then fourthly, go. It gets a bit awkward here. Not a lot of people are lining up to go on mission. I do have a list of names of people in the pipeline. But it's not loads of names. What about this church? Let's have a look around. Okay, it gets uncomfortable here, doesn't it? Who are you going to look at? Um, who could you send? The person would need to be willing and able. Uh, but this is the whole of church activity. It's a partnership. Who could we set apart and support to go and serve overseas? Now, could this be a prayer goal for our church over the next 12 months, perhaps, that God would lay on our hearts who we might send and that God might lay on the heart of the person as well because they would at some point need to be willing and need to put their hand up. Uh, and if you're not sure and you think it could be you or you've got questions or you, you wonder, then I would love to catch up with you. Just you know, get in touch, use the CMS website to, find, um, you know, to send an email or, or come and talk to me later. I'm not going to pressure anybody to go on Global Mission. It's, it actually ends up being more complicated if we send someone who's not right or if it's not the right time. But if God wills it, he will enable it because it's his thing. And maybe that's a good place for us to wind up. Is global mission God's hobby? Something he does on the side? Maybe it's his full-time job. Maybe it's even more than that. It's his entire agenda because God never sleeps. Mission is everything to God. It's the extension of his love and mercy. His wisdom just doesn't, doesn't just sit with him. He shares his wisdom. His righteousness doesn't just sit with him. He shares it with the world. And his, he has a glorious vision for humanity and for the whole of creation. And mission is about how he brings that about. Are we going to get involved in this? Are we going to pray, our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come? Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we do come before you uh, deeply thankful for what you are doing in the world, what you have done through the Lord Jesus and through all the promises leading up to his coming and his dying and rising, the sending of your spirit to the church and the sending of the church out into the world. We give you thanks for that. We thank you that we owe our salvation and our hope to the fact that missionaries crossed cultures 
for the sake of your mission. And Lord, would you inspire your church here at Trinity Church Brighton to continue to be part of this mission? Would you give us a heart for the nations? Would you show us your love for people who are different, that they're not foreign, they're just part of the diverse community that you are gathering into eternity around your throne? Now, Father, give us a love for people who are different. Give us an eye for the wide horizons of your concern and lift our eyes from our own fairly narrow concerns. Show us, Lord, that you love the whole world and that Jesus came for every nation, tribe and tongue. Lord, would you please help us? Please lay it on our hearts to pray and to care and to give. And Lord, would you set someone apart here to go? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.